0: To mark the unveiling of our New Look website, we're offering podcast listeners the chance to claim a three-month digital subscription to The Spectator absolutely free, including the magazine delivered via the app, full online access, and Spectator newsletters and podcasts. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Don Patterson, who's a poet and poetry editor and teacher and writer about poetry and one of our foremost national authorities on the subject. His new book is called Zonal, and it's a collection of poems which kicks off in some ways from the twilight zone, of all things. Don, welcome. can you tell me a bit, to start with, what what was it that made you think that the first season of The Twilight Zone was a kind of good point on which to hang poetry?
1: A very good question, and I really should have a better answer. sort of good to go. Uh, It's partly desperation. I think it was... um, I was trying to do something a little bit different, first of all. I mean, I had an instinct that I wanted to write stuff that was a little less formal than the kinds of things I've written before because I had different kinds of points to write. And, you know, and these little kind of formal sonnets that I've been bashing out these last few years aren't very good for kind of narrative or associative stuff or or, or maybe more free-ranging kind of imaginative stuff. So um, I had an instinct I needed to do something different, but it turned out to be a bit stranger than that and it was more to do with content. I mean, there was... I, I don't really have a confessional mode, but I had to find one because there were things happening in my life that I had to write about directly and I'm incapable of writing about things directly. So I found the first season of The Twilight Zone just a good lens to to look at that stuff through, mainly because um, when something happens in your life that comes at you out of the blue, whether it's a death or a big deception or, you know, some kind of, you know, sudden change, it hits you with the force of a supernatural occurrence. Uh, And that's exactly what sort of happens in in the twilight zone. There's a very domestic circumstance and all of a sudden there's some tear in the fabric of, you know physical law uh, or natural law, and then you just have to build it into your shtick somehow.
0: There's also that sense, maybe the Twilight Zone, like, you know, poems create their own little world, don't they? And each episode of the Twilight Zone seems to be set in a different universe, isn't it?
1: That's right. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the, these certain changes to law. It, you make some small tweak, and then the consequences for everything are radically different. So you suddenly find yourself in, in a universe that's parallel, but its foundations are different, you know, and the consequences of every action are different.
0: Yeah. Now, as you say, you've you you have in the past. I mean, you've always tended to write, you know, whatever the definition might be, but formal verse in some sense. And this, you found a much longer line in this this one, haven't you? I mean, there, how did that sort of arrive? I mean, and is there a, I mean, I didn't feel to me like you were counting syllables, but there's a sort of, um, I don't know, discursive quality, a sort of the length of them. Was that done entirely by ear or? Is there a kind of structure to it?
1: There's a sort of structure. I mean, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I go on about writing formal
0: verse, and I never think
1: of it as formal verse. I'm I'm too I'm sort of too inside of it to you know to be that that conscious of it, you know. So other people describe it back to one as formal verse, but I don't think of it that way. So in a sense, this is just another. form I don't think of it as any less formal than the other stuff, but it's a very different line, and I suppose. If I were to look at, at it, you know, the way that I'd look at someone else's work, I'd say this is from the Whitman-esque side of the tradition, if you like. So the, yeah. so the, the phrasing of it is really more sort of Samic. It's that thing about sort of taking a deep breath and throwing your head back and seeing how much you can say before your lungs run out. So it's it's that kind of a line. But I can also see that it will have been influenced by C.K. Williams and his long lines, which don't quite have a syllable count, but they've got a kind of a stress count, sort of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. feel to them you know that they, they feel like sort of you know like a double ballad line or something like that so there, there is a, a a loose rhythm there informing it right at the back of the line I think yeah
0: yeah I'm interested in the relationship between poetry and speech which that seems to touch on too and you, t- you talk in your book poetry or oh, sorry the poem lyric sign meter you have a line where you say you know we can accept that poetry is a neutral aspect of human speech rather than a deformation, I think you say. Do you think there's a direct continuity between speech and poetry in that way? I'm interested in why why you say that and what you mean by it.
1: I think perfectly so. I mean, I think poetry is just an aspect of speech. I don't think it's, you know, it's some weird sort of committee imposition on speech. Um, so, uh, you know, I think everything that one does in poetry successfully is just a codified version of what we do in language anyway, you know, so, and it's usually got something to do with you find a sudden disjunct between your speech and it's accommodation of reality and you have to think about how to make up the shortfall. And usually the way that we do that in language is through some deployment of a poetic function. So we'll suddenly say something more uh, originally or say it more rhythmically or say it more musically, you know, as a way of kind of making up that, to air the cliche, making a symbol adequate to reality. So, yeah, I do see it as totally continuous with language. I don't think, you know, all these conversations about is poetry dead strike me as entirely ludicrous because it's just speech, yeah?
0: Yeah. One of the things that was very welcome to me in the poem was... you know your book the poem was that you spend an awful lot of time talking about sound sound effects and are you one of those poets for whom sort of sound is if you like the main game
1: I I could be seduced by thinking that the sound was the main game and that's a flaw um I mean uh, and the main game is to keep all the plates spinning at the same time but but uh, you know inevitably you know sort of I, I, I can be distracted by the the coloured movement of sound, a bit, you know. It's just like it's. Um, so I've got to watch that, and I think um, it's a dangerous point. Is sometimes you, 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 there'll be a triumph of sound over sense, where you've been led into saying something that not quite that you didn't mean, because often or, or that's a nice surprise uh, to say something that was unintended, but you'll say something that's not true <laughs> because it sounds good. <laughs> uh so i think you 've got you 've got to watch that you know that you don 't just go for the merely euphonious uh because just because it sounds good, so it 's finding a balance of that and what what you actually intend I think
0: yeah and I think Robert Lowell somewhere in one of the introductions to the revised edition of Notebook or history, you know when he was jiggering around with those sonnet sequences, he says something like almost you want to kind of try and get away from sense doesn 't he he's he 's sort of you want to go make a sideways jump because of the sound.
1: Yeah, you want to get away from what you know, I think, you know, uh, towards what you don't yet, uh, you know, and and I think you use sound as a sort of dynamic means of making the hop from one to the other. But, uh, yeah, you'd certainly want to shake yourself out of what what you already, you know, or the sense that you already possess, because everyone's in possession of that stuff, yeah.
0: Now, you do also, and it kind of comes into the poetry, you play jazz and you're interested in jazz and you have been for a long time. And I think one of the poems here has you sitting in front of the TV, practising on your guitar, and you're saying you're trying to get a kind of muscle memory of something very repetitive in, in order to to learn to change, you know, make variations on that once you've got the the muscle memory of the sort of repetitive, you know, sequence of chords or whatever it is you're doing. Is there a relationship between jazz and poetry in that respect? I'm just wondering that repetitive thing implies the sort of metre of a line possibly as well.
1: It's, I've, I've thought about this for years, you know, and it's just like, because I was a musician before I, I, I wrote, and that, and weirdly I sort of regard myself, you know, however good or probably more likely bad a musician I am, I feel like I'm a musician more than a writer. And I think inevitably you're always looking for analogies and parallels between the two things that you do, and I don't know. I'd, uh, um, th- that particular passage you refer to was an attempt to explain to folk what it is the kind of training that you do as a jazz musician which is all sort of your training in a way but it's but at a deeper level it's all about emotional nuance and trying to make certain performance effects repeatable and I think that there is there is a parallel there with poetry um but the weird thing with poetry is the performance aspect of it is not when you go out in the road and you do a reading and you know sort of uh, in front of an audience that's that's just a really a glorified sales pitch for the book unless performance is your medium which it is for some some points but your performance is when you write so you get tooled up to write i think in the same way as you get tooled up to perform as a musician so um so when you come to the desk your five-fingered exercises have to be done your arpeggios have to be in your brain as it were you know you have to have a much closer correspondence between the words on the page and how you want them to go and that aspect of practice is, is is definitely quite similar to to jazz and it just involves a, some repetitive stuff a lot of learning a lot of thinking a lot of prepara- preparation away from the keyboard essentially
0: yeah now you, you think as as witness your your book on the subject you know pretty hard and pretty deeply and pretty formally about what you're doing it seems to me is that necessary for the practice i mean is you know is thinking about how you know, how the syllables work in a kind of formal way, how, you know, I mean, you talk about rhetorical tropes, you talk about the, you know, the way, different ways metaphor works. I mean, is all that kind of theory necessary for a practitioner? Does it improve you as a practitioner?
1: No, no, not at all. Um, I think it's just, it's, it, it suits my particular turn of mind. But to be honest, how much of it I actually use in that sort of, conscious way, I don't know, it was uh, more, that book was more to do with having a proper look at the mechanism of it, the way that you'd, you know, sort of in a, the way that you'd look at harmony or something like that, you know, because there is a technical aspect to poetry, but I don't think it's necessary to be d- particularly fluent in it to, to, you know, to write well. It depends what kind of thing you want to write. If you're writing formally, then you definitely need to have some, some uh, understanding of, of meter. And it certainly helps to know why a line is good so you can repeat the trick. So if you can look at a line and you can say, ah, oh, it's actually to do with the fact that there's this assonantal echo between these two words here and you know there's, there's this little woven consonant and that's a nice consistent metaphor that fits the theme. If you can sort of look at a line and immediately parse it that way, you've got a better chance of turning the same trick again, basically. So it's... Um but you can be d- distracted away from any kind of insp- inspiration if you just if you if you get too deeply into that stuff, you know. As you can with any theory, I mean, that's what it did for Coleridge. It's the same thing, you know. You get too into the theoretical side of things; it can't kill it's stone dead. Jazz musicians, on the other hand, tend to know a lot of theory because it's such an intrinsic part of the. Um, it's more continuous with the statement. you know you can't sort of have one without the other.
0: And you mentioned this this point you make about. You know, your performance is on the page, unless, of course, performance is your your practice. Do you think yeah. there is a kind of serious divide of kind between, if you like, spoken word and page poets? Um, I, I think there's an overlap. I, I think um, when you're writing for the page, you're
1: also actually thinking about performance. You test the line against the air, you know, because, it's, because your relationship to the, the, the physical delivery of the language is really close. Um, and it does more than just exist on the page for most of us, I think. But whereas you know, it's maybe a disease of degree in some ways. I and that's not to say that a lot of performers don't think about how it looks on the page, but primarily for them, the page can work not quite as merch exactly. You know what I mean? But it's it's a kind of um, a it's something to take home after the performance. But there's something different happening now. I mean, I think that used to be the case, but now it's maybe a tribute to the success of poetry at the moment. And it, and it is going through a really culturally successful period, which is that it's, it's having to deal with the fact that it's becoming genre And that's never really happened before. We've always tried to hold the whole thing together as a broad church. But I don't think that argument's holding anymore. I think it's become genuinely genreified, which is maybe the sign of a mature art form. So you're getting all sorts of different kinds of poetry that aren't necessarily, you know, that are a wee bit kind of mutually exclusive. That you know, it's very hard to be both into sort of performance poetry and the avant-garde, you know, and light verse, you know, sort of, uh, you know, and, and, and formal, old school, mainstream poetry. It's You don't come across too many people who like all that stuff, you know?
0: I like that you're calling it a mature art form. I mean, it's not exactly a new art form. It's really <laughs> taken it's a while to get to maturity. Maybe
1: say some of about its participants. You know, we've always recruited <laughs> sort from of a kind of adolescent constituency, I think, you know.
0: Well, was it poets die young, they're beating bombs? Exactly, yeah. But do you think that then looking back on it, I mean, you were kind of semi-involved in the, I think we could call it a stoochie, over Rebecca Watts's broadside against Holly McNish and Rupi Kaur and that, kind of, looking back on that row, this was a, I mean for for listeners who don't know it uh, Rebecca Watts, who was a kind of distinguished page poet, reviewed and attacked in PN Review, Holly McNish and Rupi Kaur, who took some more performance and if you like, kind of a looser sort of, type of poet, and she was very hostile to them, and it divided the poetry world and you were kind of a bit stuck in the middle, because you admire Rebecca Watts, if I'm not paraphrasing you wrongly, and Published as Picador Poetry Editor Holly McNish. I mean, do you look back on that and see that as a kind of moment at which this genrefication crystallised?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's when people became aware of it, and I think at that point I sort of sort of realised it was a stupid argument to be having. You know, it was, and I was trying to sort of hold the broad church position, but knowing it was bullshit. You know, it's just like I mean, you're allowed to. You know, so sort of, people can worship at different churches and be mutually tolerant of each other's. You know, it's not a problem, but we should be, you know, um, and without making a a claim that, that that one way of doing things is intrinsically better than another. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make a sort of, you know, critical judgment within any sort of, you know, subgenre of poetry. I mean, Ruby Core is it's, it's rubbish as far as I'm concerned, but nonetheless, I can see that it performs a useful function with its, with its audience. But as literature, to me, it's, it's garbage. I mean, it doesn't hold up at all. But so it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you just you have to lump it all together. You can still make some kind of critical discrimination. But to say that one way of doing things is better than another, thats that never ends well.
0: Yeah, it. there is that question that people always say, you know, the fights between poets tend to be unaccountably vicious. I mean, you've got a, a kind of joke about that towards the end of Zonal in which you you or, or the speaker of the poem rehearses his animus against a character called Alan Jacket. I yeah, suspect yeah. not his real name. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, what is his real name?
1: Oh, um, I think it would be really easy to work out, you know, sort of if you were in the the, the poetry thing, you know, sort of who my sworn enemy is. I mean, this is someone who's, um, everything I've done in the last 25 years, he's reviewed, reviewed with a sort of meticulous venom and with And it's sort of quite moving because we've both worked at this like a good marriage, you know, where we just (laughs) really put a lot of energy into maintaining this, you know, and making it work as enemies. And I think it's, you know, and it's got to be close to love in a way, you know, so it's... um, You sound like you kind of relish a feud. I, I sort of relish taking the high ground in it and sort of never naming them and never responding. Um, you know, which I think must drive him absolutely crazy. You know, it's my, my one satisfaction is that I, I, I don't. So this is the first time I've, I've sort of answered back and even then I sort of, it's, a, it's an exercise in not. It's an exercise in uh, moral superiority. So it's,
0: I'm having some fun with it. So at least I'm
1: entitled to, given what he's called me.
0: Anyway. Why do you think, but, but you know, to return to the original question, so diverted by the, the gossip, but why is that there that kind of I mean, there's always been, through history, you know, poets have been flighting each other. You know, go back to Pope, you know, go back to Skelton. Basically, attacking other poets is a kind of major thing poets do. Why is that? Was it because it was initially agonistic? Is it because it's, you know, bored men fighting over a comb? What... It's a bit of the bold
1: men thing. I think it is that thing, you know, sort of, you know, when the stakes are low, tempers run high, you know, so I think there's a touch of that about it. There's also that thing about the intra-tribal, you know, which, you know, I mean, these are sort of fights that are happening within the family. And those kind of fights, it's like the kind of fights you see on the left at the moment, you know? Incredibly vicious fights, especially around sort of, you know, issues of identity or gender or whatever, amongst people on the left that by and large share... 90% Ninety percent of the core beliefs, um, and yet you know, sort of in an age of uh, Orban and Trump and and uh, you know and Johnson and whoever else, they're turning on each other. And you think this is insane. And there's a bit of that going down with poetry, I think. You know, it's just like um, it's easier to fight with people in the family with whom you differ uh, in degree rather than than by kind, if you know what I mean. You know, it's um, yeah, and they're they're closer, they're handier, you know. And and they are also more capable of presenting you with what you're most frustrated in in yourself, you know. So they do reflect you back to you in a in a way that that can make you angry in a sort of displaced way.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you say that the the stakes are low. I'm where you see kind of poetry being in the culture at the moment, because what you know historically at least when it started and. You know through a lot of its history poetry has been kind of quite a central art form it's been you know public poetry has been a sort of normal thing to do do you think it still occupies that position or has it become more of a kind of walled garden
1: it's changing it's really tricky i don't know actually it, it's um I, f- I find it impossible to get a read on partly because i'm so close to the production of it both in the sort of you know you know as a as a practitioner and as a publisher um i've got very little perspective um it's true i think in in the uk certainly you know it's always been culturally central you know it's in a in a kind of odd position though in as much as it's, it's, it's practitioners are not really full time because poetry's the the one art form that isn't really a job you know it's not it's not something that i think that one can really do for a living so it's in this very, by definition, a weird kind of outsider position anyway, which means that everything else is a bit sort of sort of destabilized and, uh, and equivocal in terms of its role. It's because its practitioners are su- such strange individuals, you know. They they can't be defined by their practice. It's just something they do occasionally. So that's a terrible answer, but I mean, I would i have to get back to it in on that one. I don't, <laughs> well, that's a good answer, a nuanced it's, you know. answer. Um, but I mean,
0: it, it remains kind of. I mean, one of the things that baffles me is it seems to be it remains high status, even as people, you know, the public consumes it less and less. I mean, I remember I, years ago, edited a small poetry magazine and we were inundated with submissions. And if everybody who wrote poetry bought it, you know, like in that Martin Amis short story, you know, people would be buying condos on the proceeds of their latest sonnet.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's I, I, one of the things that's happened recently is that sales are really up an awful lot, which is great. Um, so we're not quite back to sort of looking at whatever it was, you know, hundred and Twenty thousand copies of In Memoriam got you know sailing out in the first two weeks of its publication, but sales are high again, you know, and and lists are turning a profit, so so sales aren't that small, and I think one of the interesting things about the genrefication thing, and maybe even I mean, I get shot for saying this, but I'm I'm going to risk it anyway. Maybe even the emergence of something that might turn out to be the equivalent of of brow fiction is emerging and I think one of the you know and, and I, I, I don't know if it's possible to use that term neutrally but I intend it neutrally but one of the good things about that that whatever the hell I mean by that is the fact that it doesn't have a practicing constituency it's read by people who read it for pleasure or enlightenment it's not just read by poets so I think it's it's we're seeing a move towards a general readership again which I think is extremely healthy
0: Do you think that I mean you you. Say that this is, in a sense, a turn towards confessional poetry. I think I'll just try and find it, but you've got a disclaimer early on, which is kind of typically and carefully, you know, streetwise. You say their frequent tone of for your too much information should not be mistaken for confession. It isn't, except on those occasions when it is. Is that having your cake and eating it? Oh, I hope so.
1: <laughs> that was certainly the intention. Uh yeah, I mean it's I mean it's outrageous. I mean it just of course it's um Yeah. I mean it was just a sort of half baked attempt at some plausible deniability in a kind of Rachel Cuskey way. I don't know. You know, just like some kind of distance. But I think on the other hand the whole Twilight Zone Conceit sort of hopefully provides that. I mean that was the idea, was that you know, it's just like it's it's not continuous with my autobiography, so it's um um, you know, and the things I was feeling have been dramatically exaggerated for effect and whatever. So
0: what in general do you make of the idea of kind of confessional poetry? I mean it's you know, it's associated with the sort of Plath, Lowell, Berriman, Sexton, Rutke mid late twentieth century. There's this moment in poetry when you could say, you know, as Lowell says, you know, why not say what happened? I mean, do you think that was a was a good thing, was a freeing thing for poetry, or are you of more you know, Art is most feigning kind of line.
1: I think it was uh, no. I don't think it was a particularly liberating thing. I think, it, in some ways, it was. But I mean, it was a it was a smaller thing than people made made of it. Because poetry's always been confessional, and there's always been this. You know, apart from you know certain periods. I mean, it, it wouldn't be true of 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 maybe the Augustans. But for the most part, when when the poet uses the word "I," you know, people assume they're talking about themselves. And the confessional thing was really just about an exaggerated fidelity to the details of one's own autobiography, you know, sort of... um, So it has a sort of veridical sort of aspect that it maybe didn't have before, but I think that's quite a trivial distinction. You know, I mean, I don't think Berryman was doing anything that was that different. I mean, there was maybe a a pitch of hysteria in Be- Berryman that wasn't there before, but that's a stylistic thing. So I don't think it was a movement. I think I think poetry's always been a bit like that. People always assume you're talking about yourself. Poets have always used that expectation as an opportunity to subvert it.
0: Do you take particular pleasure in kind of putting the stuff of the modern world and other art forms into the poetry? I mean, I mean you know what. A- one of the very few ways in which I might object to Zonal is going, hang on a second, there's a spoiler here for the bridge in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did think about putting
1: spoiler alert, but I thought that was like that was the real sort of, you know, half-assed postmodern metatextual bore thing to do. But um, yeah, there is a spoiler for The Tunnel, I think it is. It's just, it oh, sorry, The Tunnel, I oh, think. Yeah, it gives it's... the entire third series away, you know, it's just like, it makes the whole thing pointless to watch if you read the poem. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe shouldn't have done that, but I was feeling it, as I say, so, uh, yeah.
0: And also video games. Are you, You've got a, a, there's a lovely poem dedicated to Nick Laird, which is set in a video game world, or appears to be, and... I mean, are you a great consumer of video games? I'm sort of imagining you sitting away with you know, an Xbox or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, your imagination would be quite correct. I mean, it's, um, I mean, the book's really just a list of obsessions, you know, sort of genuine obsessions. So I'm, I'm obsessed with US billiards. I'm pretty obsessed with video games. I'm obsessed with jazz and with music theory and, you know, and, and so it was just, it was really a, a ref on one's obsessions, which, if you have an obsessive nature, composes your entire existence you know so games are just an aspect of that but there was a time in the 90s when I was reviewing them for the times uh computer games and I know yeah I've got, I've got a ps4 so I, so I do once my teaching's done at the end of the day you know occasionally I'm um, fire something up shoot a few zombies a few Nazis <laughs> that's
0: all good practice <laughs> no, that, good thanks up. very much yeah, exactly me. yeah yeah Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.